I heard the question Friday night from a friend, and uh, it is a dreaded question. It's more dreaded than, have you prepared for your funeral? Are you getting a colonoscopy? Here's the question. Because you've heard it. I know, and I bet you know what I'm going to say. Are you ready? Isn't that a dreaded question? No? Okay, I want you to think about this, because I wrote a little rant here, and I'm asking you just to pay attention and, and follow me. And The getting ready for Christmas rant. The planning and preparation are over the top as we converge onto one day. First, the tree. Real or artificial, we decorate the tree. We decorate our home inside, outside. We fix broken lights and burnt out lights. We buy more lights. We steal our neighbor's lights. We start pulling out Christmas music, old school records and CDs, new school Spotify, iTunes. We buy presents, gifts, gift cards. We rush to stores and endure horrific lineups so we can do a price match. We cook, we bake ahead, cakes, cookies, bread, spreads, soups, stock our pantries and freezers. We send out cards, real and digital, or at least we put them on our table and promise to send them out next year. We buy wrapping paper, new wrapping paper, because the wrapping paper we bought last year got soaked in a spring, spring flood in the basement and was half eaten by mice and mildew. We visit thrift stores to buy ugly Christmas sweaters, only to realize that the one we bought was the one that our mother-in-law gave to us 10 years ago, which we are told and convinced that it was set fire to and buried in our backyard. We go to gatherings, Christmas tree lighting ceremonies, events and parades. Our children beg us to come to their school plays where we sit through politically correct holiday musicals only to sing and pay homage to trees, acorns, magic walruses, and winter fairies and go through the usual mindless rhetoric of saying, wishing people happy holidays, season greetings, and winter cheer. We go to cantatas and concerts and office parties and luncheons and neighborhood open houses and outhouses. We give to World Vision and send out Christmas cards to dear little children who only get them in February. We hang up stockings and fill them with indulgences for our adult bodies and tooth decaying rot for our children. We watch movies about elves, ghosts, Bing Crosby, snowmen, reindeers, and Satan. I mean Santa. Rich, selfish, hateful Englishmen and a melancholy little boy who has no directing skills, let alone discernment when it comes to choosing a Christmas tree. And we entertain relatives who eat our food and plug up our toilets. And re-gift us with gifts that we gave them two years ago only because they first gave us the gift in the first place. We take our pets to veterinarian emergency services because they ate once again for the fifth year in a row poinsettia leaves and now our carpets are permanently stained. And we go to church and listen to sermons and sing carols and and light candles and wish each other a Merry Christmas, go home, consume large amounts of Advil and Tylenol, stare at the nativity scene underneath our tree and cry as we think about Boxing Day. If only getting ready for Christ's second coming was as easy as getting ready for Christmas. Yeah, well, thank you for indulging me in my episodic madness. It's Advent season. And uh, with Advent, our globe... The church, many, many, are using this season as a way of reorienting their hearts towards the coming of Christ. 
Because in the true, genuine spirit of Advent, the coming of Jesus, past tense, obviously deserves our worship and our recognition, but it doesn't end there. Advent helps us to focus on the fact that Jesus, through his spirit, comes to us daily in our times of prayer, in our gathering in community. But more importantly, and as an incentive for the lives that we live righteously and faithfully in the present day, we are looking forward to, as was read this morning, the blessed hope of the return of Jesus. And Christmas, really, in a lot of ways, sometimes can so pull us away from the preparation for getting ready for Christ. And so today, we are going to be looking at that very thing. You see, Advent, the way it was celebrated in the early church, really didn't come together until probably the end of the 5th century. Usually, this time of the year was reserved for prayer and fasting and getting ready for baptism. By the end of the 7th century, the connection between the birth of Jesus and Christmas and what we call Advent now was finally put together. Up to that point, the only scripture that was read at this time of the year were scriptures that addressed the second coming of Christ. When the scriptures of his birth start being incorporated in the season, which is referred to as Advent, they were only secondary. They were add-ons at the end. Anything that was read focused specifically on the fact that Jesus Christ was coming back again. And if the early church felt it important to take a season as a way of preparing and training and forming people with this understanding that he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back. How much more do we need the same kind of preparation? Now, in all fairness, the communal focus on helping one another to get ready has been lost. And so we need to go back and re reread the original Christmas story and see if there's anything in there that we have overlooked. Is there anything in that initial story that would somehow suggest to us that getting ready for Christ was indeed the focus, not the afterthought? Today's message, uh, obviously, as you heard from the amazing reading by Sammy, my lad. Jen looked over at me. She said, you got to follow that. <laughs> I go and crawl in the parking lot now, please. I mean, you know, like this wasn't reading a little story about Piglet and Tigger and Pooh, right? I mean, it's... but Sammy read two portions of Scripture that um, really are a reduction of the story. And I did that very intentionally because the first chapter of Luke is 80 verses long. 
There's a lot of detail in there, and I really, i got to be honest with you, I really struggle sometimes separating what's important from what's just purely interesting. And sometimes to me it's all interesting and it's all important, and you suffer the consequences. So I'm not going to do that to you today. But I did center out the two portions of Scripture that really focus specifically on John's mission as told to him or as told to Zechariah by the angel Gabriel and then as was prophesied by Zechariah as he's scolding John. Now, we need to understand that at the time of all of this happening, Luke chapter 1, these were not happy days in Israel. These weren't, um, you know, mistletoe and goodwill to men and God rest you merry gentlemen and all the above. Religiously, the ritualism of religious Judaism had long since replaced the reality of what they once understood to be in relationship with the covenant God. Politically, Israel was oppressed, subdued. Phil Bianci made this wonderful observation, which for those of us who know a bit about Russian history, would, would kind of go, oh, yeah, that, that was dark. He said, really, in, in essence, there was no difference between Russia under the rule of Stalin, Joseph Stalin, as, there was, as it was to Israel under the rule of King Herod. There were public executions every day. People went missing. Uh, there were dark times. There were spies everywhere. People lived not only with the fear of Roman oppression and domination, but they were constantly looking over their shoulder to see who would rat them out to their own government. It was an incredibly dark time. And, and worst of all, there were 400 years of silence since there was a prophetic word. In other words, 400 years had gone by since there was a thus saith the Lord to Israel. The last word that could possibly be found in their memory, maybe or maybe not echoing, was the final five verses in the book of Malachi. But there was still a remnant waiting, a very small marginalized group of people who had the gall, the audacity to actually believe in the promises of God in spite of the obvious that God would be true to his word, that there was reason for hope and that their waiting was not in vain. As a matter of fact, it was said of one character in Luke chapter 2 that he was awaiting Israel's consolation. And right around the same time, in a foreign country, a couple of astrologers and philosophers in their, their, their profession of reading stars start to realize that there's something happening in the heavenlies that is huge and magnificent, so much so that they are inspired to get up, pack up their stuff, get ready, and leave for a foreign land with hopes of at least seeing something of it when it happens. And in the midst of all of this darkness, the remnant waiting, the astrologers packing up their stuff and loading up and heading for Israel, 
an elderly man who finally has his one opportunity of a lifetime to go and serve as priest in the temple and to offer incense is visited by an angel about scared him to death. And the truth is, is that if you were standing here at the altar someday and you just came in for a time of prayer when nobody was around and you were praying and out of the blue an angel shows up, yeah, you'd have stained carpets. The angel makes incredible announcement to Zechariah. Happy days are back. You're going to have a baby. Really? Okay. <laughs> I like to see that happen. But sure and lo and behold, it happens. Now, what I want to focus on for the next few moments is three specific things about the reason, the raison d'etre, the purpose of this little baby's coming to this elderly couple at a point in their life where they should really be enjoying their retirement. And now they got to get ready for a baby. Some of you think you have it hard. <laughs> you got to take care of a dog. Okay. I thought I'd throw that in. Yeah, I should have left that in. Sorry about that. Three things I want to focus on, first of all. Number one, John. John will and would turn people back to God and to each other. So says the angel. Gabriel says this to Zechariah. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. and He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. See, this is repentance and conversion language. The angel is telling Gabriel, listen, this little baby that you're going to have eventually, this little baby is going to be a spiritual catalyst in the nation you represent when you go to that altar. This little child is going to be responsible for setting into motion something that will not be reversed. That when this little child grows up and does what he does, there will be a mantle upon him, a spiritual, authoritative mantle, where his words will spark spiritual renewal and revival to Israel. Now, the beautiful, beautiful thing about it is that not only would it spark spiritual revival, it would do something to the families as well. Such a, a, an odd statement that not only would hearts be turned towards the Lord, but heart but, but the hearts of the fathers would be turned to their children. And I want you to think about that. Because normally when we, when we hear about families being reconciled, particularly in a spiritual context, 
it's usually like my wayward son or my wayward daughter has finally come home. The implications here is that maybe the spiritual waywardness did not rest on the children, but that it had more to do with the parents, with the priests of the home, with the fathers. I'll, I'll just leave that with you. Gabriel says that John will be filled with the Spirit while in the womb, meaning that in his growing up years, the Spirit of God will be at work in him constantly and continuously. And I just thought for a minute, I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that perhaps because his parents are so old, he may have grown up without them. Because by the time he gets to present himself to Israel, he's pretty close to 30 years old. I just don't know if Zechariah and Elizabeth would still be alive. But it's, it's just something I'd like us to think about so we get an idea of what kind of person is this. Now, John is going to fulfill a very important scripture. And I could almost picture... Zechariah, when he hears what Gabriel says, that he would turn the hearts. You see, that is literally the last phrase in the Old Testament. The very last few verses. In other words, if Israel had anything to hang their hopes on, was this. That one day, somebody would appear in the spirit and power of Elijah to call Israel back to repentance before that great and terrible day of the Lord. And I wish we could spend more time talking about that day, but again, it's just one of those things where we'd be on a rabbit trail. But the point is, is that somebody would come who would wake up the nation and call her back to repentance. Now, why Elijah? Well, one thing we know about Elijah is probably the most prolific Old Testament prophet. We know now looking back in Scripture that he is connected with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus changes before his disciples. But the point is, is that what we do also know about Elijah is that he was somebody who was not afraid to go up against priests, politician, people, and just call it as it is. We see that obviously in 1 Kings 18. The point is, is that John is not coming as a carbon copy, a, a, uh, a renewed Elijah kind of deal. He, when it says that he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, he's coming in the motivation, the manner, the means, the message, the authority that, that, that represented Elijah. Now, for those of you who have read John chapter 1, you know, there might be a little verse in your mind going back, yeah, but hold on a second, John, John denied that. John denied being Elijah, and John denied being the prophet. The point is, is that at that time, Elijah was such a character, um, caricature. In other words, the idea of Elijah had grown above and beyond what Scripture had said, so that they were expecting and waiting for some kind of really blazing 
amazing kind of dude to show up. John, essentially what John was saying is, I'm not that. I'm not, I'm not this thing you've got pictured in your mind. And I'm not the reincarnation of Elijah. But I'll, I'll leave that there. Secondly, it says that he will help prepare people to get right with God. Now, I just want to say this little bit. Uh, unfortunately, the translation that I use literally switches the words around. And I didn't want to go back to using a different translation because that would get people confused. And so I left it as it was. But the verse that is found in Luke one seventeen simply says this, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Really, the translation is to prepare people so that they would be a ready people for the Lord. But while that works in English, it doesn't work in Hebrew, but the point doesn't change really at all, is that John, in his relationship to Israel and calling her to repentance, would preach and do things and say things that had the effect of wanting people to prepare. If you look at some of the statements he made in Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, you understand that it wasn't just, hey, Messiah is coming. Get with it. He was very practical. He He told tax collectors, listen, don't take more than you ought to. He told soldiers, listen, don't grumble about your salary and don't Put the fear of of the government into people so you can extort from them what you want. And he told the average person, listen, don't be greedy. Share your clothing, share your food. In other words, there were very simple action steps that that people could do as a way of getting ready. The point is, is that it wasn't so much a call to good works, is that any movement to turn people away from where they were turn them towards God, and actually get them to do something was, was a work of preparation. Naturally, baptizing them in the Jordan with the, symbolic, or the symbolism of consecration, of being set apart and cleansing, was something, I think it was just kind of part and parcel of the preparation, but... Again, I, I'm trying not to go too far ahead because here we are in the birth story and Gabriel's, or, or Gabriel's sharing all of this to Zechariah. And Zechariah's trying to take this all in that my son is going to prepare this nation. Thirdly, oh, I'm sorry. One verse that appears or is alluded to throughout the first chapter of Luke, is this verse, obviously, from uh, Isaiah 40. A voice of one crying, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make straight highway for our God in the desert. I want to say this. Israel, in the state that she was in, actually had time to do something. For 
26, 28 years of hearing about the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the, the condition, the situation of Israel, that it was so dark and hopeless. The point is, is that there was, in some sense, advance warning. It's not like God just showed up the way Jesus did. Obviously, you understand what I'm trying to say. And just said, hey, I'm here. Do something. The word got out. Everybody in Zechariah's vicinity, neighborhood, knew that something was going to be particularly unique and special about this child. The bottom line is, word got around. So the preparation that we see in Luke 3 and Matthew 3 really started much more earlier than that. But we just don't really hear too much about it. And it would, it would appear that, that scripture is silent. But people were getting stirred up. In other words, there's a reason why there was still a believing remnant. Thirdly, it says he will get ready, or he will get the people ready to meet the Messiah. All of John's preparations, his personal preparations in the wilderness, the things that he did in his ministry, were all for the point of getting the people to a place where when Jesus showed up on the scene, they were ready to do something about it. Now, you look at, I'm really trying not to jump ahead of myself here because we're not even dealing with Luke chapter 3. The challenge here is that when John came preaching, people left the city, left the the temple, the busy place, the what we would call the hub, and they went to the desert and to the wilderness. In other words, they had to leave where they were, the familiar setting, the familiar surroundings, go back almost in, in essence, like metaphorically, be stripped down to nothing, come to the water, face this strange, odd-looking man, to hear this message that the kingdom's at hand, that it's time to repent and to get ready. The truth is, is that a lot of people responded to the message of John. A lot of people were, were wondering what's next, what's going to happen. Even the Pharisees sent out a delegation to find out, okay, tell us who you really are. But you know the The crazy thing about it is that you think there would have been a flock of people, droves, crowds, throngs of people following Jesus. Truth is, is that John's looking at Jesus and he's got two disciples with him. One we know for sure is Andrew, the other one most likely John. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
The very next day, they leave and they follow Jesus. They were ready. And without trying to read into Scripture what's not there, I'm thinking, where's everybody else? Why aren't they flocking to Jesus? When they come back to John and say, hey, listen, you know this guy that you baptized and um, went on his way and, and all that, there's a lot more people going to him now than going to you. And John says, yeah, that's okay. They're supposed to. They're supposed to be ready to follow him. But I'm ready too. You see, John not only preached a message of readying the people of Israel for Messiah, for Jesus, but he himself was ready. How interesting enough that on the verge of that, that statement, that little, hey, John, did you know that the, the guy you baptized, he's baptizing over there? He finishes by saying, he must increase, I must decrease, and lo and behold, next thing you know, he's arrested. We all know where that ended. Okay, from their world to our world, and, and here's where I really want to spend the last bit of time that I have left with you on this, because like all this is nice, but ultimately in our hearts we say, so what? Well, here's the so what. You see, in the birth story of Jesus, you don't get to Jesus unless you first go through John. You want to fast forward a chapter later? You don't get to Jesus coming to his baptism and going into the wilderness and starting his ministry unless you come by John. And to be quite honest with you, like like one writer said, we don't know what to do with John. Right? What do you do with the story of John in Luke 1? It's kind of like... Yeah, okay, so an elderly couple have a baby, that's, and, and he's a special child, and, and he's, you know, he's not going to drink beer, poor guy. It's okay, you can smile. What, what kind of, what kind of guy is John? You know, I, I almost wonder that, when, when, was he the kind of guy who, whoever got invited over to people's places? Oh, yeah, uh, Zechariah's kid, yeah. Oh, I don't know about him. That's the kid who chases bees and eats locusts. And, you know, most kids want to go and, and play and, and go to the farmer's market. This guy's always sizing up camels to figure out, you know, would this fit? He's a weird kid. He's got long hair, really long hair. He, he doesn't shave. He smells. What do you do with John at Christmas? I'm starting to discover, and even in the readings of Advent, which, to be quite honest with you, I threw out decades ago, only trying to recover them. Do you know that there, there, are, there are segments of the church today that use John as a catalyst and a reminder to us that just as Israel, 
just as God made it possible for Israel potentially to be prepared for the coming of Jesus, that we too need to do things, and I'm going to expound on the need to do things here in a minute, but that we need to do things to get ready to prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus. You see, it's not just about getting ready for Christmas. It's about getting ready for Christ. Now, I'm going to take a little... I I can do this. I can do this in about two or three minutes. There is no more John the Baptist, right? He came, he's gone, he died a horrific death, but he went on to his rightful reward... And we have his testimony with us this day as incentive. Now, it'll sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm not. So just hang on here with me. Many years ago, I was at a Pentecostal camp, and I spoke with a very, very influential Pentecostal evangelist. And for six services, all I heard about was the baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Baptism in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. The baptism in the Holy Spirit, you got to speak in tongues. And people would come up to the front and he'd lay hands on their head and be like, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the moment somebody spoke in tongues, man alive, the spotlights came on and they, and tell us all about it. Well, I, I spoke in tongues. <sighs> So I went up to him after this whole thing was done. I said, I got a question for you because I've been afraid to ask the people who are in the know because every time I do, they look at me as if I, like I got two heads. So I'm going to ask you because you're the man, right? Like, that's going to kind of think, saying, okay. So in Joel, it says that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh Old men will dream, right, but old men will have visions. I, I forget it, but there's dreams, there's visions, but people are going to prophesy. And I said, like, like I understand what happened on the day of Pentecost because it happened to me too. I speak in tongues. If it wasn't for that wonderful gift, I probably would have had a nervous breakdown 25 years ago. You know, just be, that's what kept me sane in prayer when I was just all over the place. But the point is, is, I said, can you just help me to understand the bigger picture of this? Your, your young men will, uh, you know, your, your prophesy. Uh, upon my handmaidens, they will prophesy. So I pour on my spirit. And, and we went back and forth. And, he, and, and the more I kept on probing, the more he was getting upset with me. And finally, he just walked up to me and he said, son, he put his hand on my shoulder, nice and firm, and he looked me straight in the eyes. He said, we are a non-profit organization. Thank you. He walked away. Non-profit, right? Not, not IF, right? You know, non-profit for organization. Well, of course, you get everything. I mean, like, just kind of looking for a little bit of like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. Okay. Because, see, when I see the word prophet, there are all kinds of caricatures coming up into your mind, right? Oh, these, oh, my goodness, we could have fun for the next hour telling horror stories, really, about prophets in the church. But, you know, Moses said, I wish to God 
all of God's people were prophets. And then you've got Paul in 1 Corinthians talking to the Corinthian church and all their tongue wagging and tongue flapping because they were hung up on the gift of tongues. He says, you know, I really wish more of you would prophesy than going around speaking in tongues. So when you read that, you think, oh, yeah, but oh, you don't want people prophesying because that gets really strange and weird and stuff like that until you really start understanding and separate even, dare I even say it, at the risk of being crucified, our prejudicial Pentecostal understanding of the prophetic. Because I, I remember serving at a church in Georgia with a lot of wing nuts, and, and it, was not cust- it, was, it was customary every day for people to come up to the, uh, the, the lead pastor and say, Brother Walden, you got a word for me? You got a word for me? Want to prophesy over me, please? Just, I'm ready, brother. And you know, like, like I, I was a, a, a convert from Roman Catholicism to evangelical Pentecostalism, black Pentecostal holiness style. I mean, yeah, that was another story. But like I'm watching all this and I said, what's this? You got a word for me? You got a word for me? And Gonna prophesy over me, put your hands over me, and say something. And I was like, "Whoa, this is wild!" Like, like you're saying things from the heart of God to this individual. And okay, I better, I better short up the story. I'm just gonna stop this. Here's what I'm trying to get at. In First Corinthians chapter 14. Verses 1 to 5 talks about the gift of prophecy within the church and says that it is for the strengthening of people, for the encouragement of people, and the consolation. And why do we get all hung up on all the weird and the wacky and the strange and the bizarre and that do you have a word for me? I'm discovering more and more that Prophetic speech is more about forth-telling, not foretelling. You understand the difference? So much of what was recorded as prophetic speech in the Old Testament were prophets calling the people back to repentance as they found a way of articulating what was black and white in the law in new creative ways sometimes with a reference to events that would come about in their lifetime. Douglas Stewart, who was a master Hebrew exegete on prophetical literature, said that there's approximately 2% of prophecy in the Old Testament that has to deal with the future. Did you hear me? 2%. And yet, when we hear the word prophetic, we're thinking about words for me and who am I going to marry and, and is Donald Trump the Antichrist? And, you know, I mean, like, whoa. My point is, John functioned as a prophetic voice calling people back to the Lord, back to repentance, back to preparing themselves to meet Jesus. Who prepares us today to meet Jesus? Who are the voices that say, you know what? He is coming back. 
Who's the voices that, that gently tap us on the back of the shoulder and say, you know what? It, it's time to turn. It's time to turn and prepare and make sure that you are ready for the coming of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says this, And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, so I got to... Very quickly. And this will be quick. Conclusion, we need to turn. Continually and corporately. How, how do we turn? How do we turn from to turn to? Well, I think it's fair to say that we are a distracted group of people. We are constantly drifting away from what we know is best for us. And I'm speaking in a spiritual sense. We need to assess constantly the things that we do, that we are engaged in, that we're giving our heart, our time, our money, our energy, our focus, our life, our strength to. We need to look at it and say, is this distracting me and derailing me and detouring me and causing me to drift? This cultural phenomena we call FOMO, <laughs> fear of missing out, cultural phenomena. It predisposes us to always being preoccupied with, with the unexpected so that we can never really be focused and we're always in a a state of perpetual distraction. Like, what am I going to miss out on? Oh, oh, my phone rang. <gasps> oh, there's a preview on Netflix. Oh, <gasps> it's like we're constantly living in this. <gasps> no wonder our predecessors, no wonder we are so easily distracted as a people. That our capacity to focus has shrunk. That we can't stay aligned and centered and grounded on the things that matter most, i.e. Jesus and his word and, and the body of Christ and community. Like, like the moment we do that, we start getting exhausted. We start getting fidgety. We want to go home. Service is over. We can't wait to get out of the door. Uh, present company excluded. But the point is, is if we can start assessing our lives and looking at the things that are constantly tripping us and distracting us and start turning from those things, we will have started our journey back. Secondly, we need to prepare ourselves continually and corporately by addressing what I call the depletion reality in our lives. You see, when you go to cook a meal, when you go to plan a vacation or you're getting ready for your retirement, you're constantly looking at what do I not have? What do I need to go from here to there? That's what we do. Like nobody engages in a meal with an empty cupboard. If you're going to prepare for a meal, you need your ingredients. The point I'm trying to get at is that in this preparation of being ready, ready being the destination, the, the, the point, 
preparation, the process. What is it that you're lacking? Is it Is it habits, practices, commitments? Are there values, essentials, things you need to be reminded of, things that need to be recovered? What are you lacking? What are you in need of? What are you keep What do you keep on coming short of? coming up short on. It's just not there that you need to prepare, that you need to put in place and make sure that it's there so that you're, you're at least somewhat cognizant of the fact that the life you're living in the present has a destination and a purpose because Christ is coming back. Thirdly, we need to be ready continually and corporately. Now, getting ready at the Govra home. Oh, don't look at my family. They're angels. They're great at this. I'm picking on myself. You know, my wife knows that when we have to go somewhere, she's got to give me at least two hours advance warning. Why? Because I got this notorious habit of preparing and preparing and preparing and preparing and preparing and taking this and taking that. And I got contingency plan for this, contingency plan for that. And it's kind of like, Mark, are you ready to go? No, no, I still got to, I, I, I forgot. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm causing her to lose her hair, really. Because, Mark, you're always preparing, but you're never ready. Because that's... Does, does that sound familiar, Pastor Shannon? <laughs> right? Right? You see, it's not because I'm lazy. It's not because I'm waiting to the last minute. No, 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 no. No, I'm preparing. I'm making sure that if we go to the store, I got hand cream. I got dental floss. I'm preparing. Okay, you get the point. So now you can all laugh at me and go home. Leave me alone. The point is, our preparation has a purpose. It's to be in a state of readiness. Why? There are so many things that come into our lives to delay us. So many things that come into our lives that kind of like for a season, we're knocked off focus, off balance. And it's like we, we, I'm not talking about distraction. I'm just talking about life itself. But life has a way of setting us back, setting us back. And, and we, we delay doing the things that we need to do. So the truth is, is that we're not always ready. Now, this is going to sound odd. Yeah, praying attention. I sometimes serve as a spiritual director to certain individuals and pastors in Canada, believe it or not. Um, and, I, and I kind of work quasi in the area of spiritual formation with, with um, other individuals. And so I, I'm notorious on, on bringing up the theme of attentiveness, awareness, alertness to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Because 
living in North America, if there's anything that we're completely deficient of, is the capacity to be aware, alert, and attentive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. And I'm realizing that I have probably heaped more guilt on people by challenging them to pay attention. And I'm telling you, folks, this came to me as gentle, and this way you know it's God, but powerfully. We lack, can we just agree to this? Because there's no shame in admitting this. We lack the ability to pay attention, to remain alert, and to be aware. So the challenge to us today is not to pay attention, but is to pray attention. You understand what I'm saying? Is that it is in the, the challenge, the commitment, the discipline, the practice of prayer that our hearts get recovered and reoriented and recentered so that we're, we're, we are paying attention. We are in a state of readiness. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. There's more I can say about it. We don't have the courtesy or the luxury of having the equivalent of a John the Baptist to get us ready for the second coming of Jesus. It's on us, people. It's on us as a community of faith. It's on us as leaders. It's on us as small group leaders. It's on us as Sunday school teachers, as teachers in general, as parents, mothers and fathers, single parents, single moms and dads. It's on us that somehow in the life that we live, we're constantly preparing. We're, we're, we're getting ready for the coming of Jesus. Now, I understand the reality of it. Christmas comes once a year. And, and you say, well, okay, Mark. So, so Christmas, like we, we look back and we celebrate the first coming and we think about the ways that Christ comes to us daily. I mean, we do that all the time, but getting ready for the Christ who is yet to come. The whole point of Christmas, and that is why it's part, it, it is literally the first big event in the liturgical or church-slash-Christian calendar. Because way back in the early days of the early church, there was this understanding, let's get one thing straight. Let, let, let first things first, he's coming back. Because he's coming back, we need to be faithful to our mission to the world. We need to be faithful to each other and stir each other up to stay focused on the fact that Jesus is coming back. Hence, Advent, which comes from the Latin word adventus, which is literally translating the word arrival, coming, appearing, a present, is a focus and has been for many more centuries than we would like to admit it has been completely focused on the second coming of Jesus. The phenomena we call Christmas probably started coming into our existence around the 15th century. So if we're talking about being like the early church, in this case, it would be more like the medieval church, 
then somehow, somewhere along the way, we need to reconcile ourselves with the fact that Christmas is not just about the presents and the tree and all the fall la we talked about at the beginning of the service, that, that somehow in what we do, how we do, where we do, why we do, there's this genuine, general understanding that I, what am I doing to turn away from the things that have robbed my attention, my heart, my time, and my energy? What can I do to prepare myself to be a person who is at least remotely ready in spirit, in disposition, in attitude, for the coming of Christ. This can't be a sermon series once a year. This has got to be part of our daily rhythm. Nothing sexy about it. Right? This doesn't put chills up and down your spine. But as Paul tells the Romans, the end is nearer than when we first believed. John the Baptist was tasked with getting a people ready for the coming of Jesus. It's in there in the Christmas birth story, I believe, is a reminder to us. Turn, prepare, be ready. Turn, prepare, be ready. And I believe that's God's word to us today. Turn, turn from, turn to, prepare yourself, be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the fact that you, your word is true. And, and we would be the first ones to admit that it feels like sometimes we are living in the New Testament equivalent of the 400 years of silence that your people lived through between Malachi and Matthew. It's not that we're not hearing from you. But in all our hearing, we don't really seem to be orienting ourselves towards the fact that Jesus is coming back. We love the lives you have blessed us with, but our identity as the people of God is that we are foreigners and strangers, aliens and pilgrims. We're here for a God time, not a long time. So may this Christmas be one where somehow, Lord, through your word, through our our engagement with one another, through the readings, that we not only look back with gratitude because our whole lives are here because of the fact that you, Jesus came, but what must our lives become in light of the fact that you're coming back? That's where we need help. We don't have John the Baptist anymore. So maybe maybe there's a way that we can be prophetic, not in going around and, and quote-unquote having words for each other, Father, but having a sober word that will help us to turn, to prepare, to get ready, to live in that state of readiness. While our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I just want to extend this invitation to anybody who perhaps you are here for the first time today. 
um, you've been invited, or you found out about Evangel, you showed up, and you're just checking it out. It's time of the year to do something like that. And, um, you know, you know something about the Christmas story. You know the fact that it's, it's Jesus came as a baby, and he came for a purpose, and it was wonderful. It's just an incredible time of the year. You know, what I like to say to individuals who are hearing this for the first time is that you can be in this present moment what Bethlehem was to the birth of Jesus. Your heart can be a modern-day manger. In this world, there's not a lot of room for Jesus. But I'm asking you, sir, madam, who, whoever you may be, can you make room in your life today for Christ to be, quote-unquote, born in you? That you would leave here today not knowing about the story, but actually with this sense that you've invited him to come into your, your manger, your heart, your life. I can't promise you what will happen, what won't happen, what will come out of it. I, I will say this much. Mary opened up her life to Jesus. She, he was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. And as Philip Yancey, this, this author once said, G, Mary was the first person to take Jesus literally at his word and to make room for him in her life. Perhaps you want to make room in your life for Jesus today. If you do, you know what? All you need to say is, Lord, I don't understand this, but if my heart, my life can be a manger, a place for you to, to come into me, metaphorically speaking, then I want it to be that. I don't want to leave this place with a message here and, and leave the way I came. Would you open up your life to him?